the National Concert Hall is delighted to announce its new concert season for 24-25, featuring over 60 concerts by world-class artists. Enjoy the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra with Sir Simon Rattle, our very own National Symphony Orchestra and guests, opera favourites with Tara Erocht, cutting-edge music with Bryce Desner, family concerts and lots more. Your music, your National Concert Hall. Book now. Package discounts available. cnch.ie Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Blacks. Wildly, deliciously, organic. Chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On behalf of the government, the state and its citizens... I apologise for the profound generational wrong visited upon Irish mothers and their children who ended up in a mother and baby home or a county home. As the Commission says plainly, they should not have been there. We failed, they say, to respect the inherent dignity of the women and children who came to the home. We failed to offer them the compassion that they so badly needed. We were part of the system in which they suffered hardship, loneliness and terrible hurt. We offer our profound apologies to all the women and children of St Mary's Mother and Baby Home, to their families and to the people of this country. Uh, My feeling is that the report and the official political commentary coming from government uh, are beginning to look like a sham, an insult and a whitewash. I look at this report and I, I, I struggle for words, but I owe that to the survivors to find words to articulate because you are actually placing abuse on abuse in the manner in which this whole subject has been dealt with. The voices and apologies and reactions there from an extraordinary, sad, painful and rage-inducing week in Ireland when the report by the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes came out after being leaked to a newspaper which, of course, caused even more grief and pain to survivors. The Commission, as you know, but just to remind you, was set up in 2015 following revelations about the deaths and burials of hundreds of children at a former mother and baby home in Tume, County Galway. The Commission was charged with examining what happened to vulnerable women and children in mother and baby homes in the state during the period from 1922 to 1998. It's absolutely incredible that it was still going on till then, isn't it? And the Commission's final report, which runs to 3,000 pages, was submitted to the government on October 30th, 2020 and published on January 12th this week. The three members of the Commission were Justice Yvonne Murphy, Professor Mary Daly and Dr William Duncan. We are going to be looking at the report today and joining us on the podcast, talking to Cathy Sheridan in voices full of emotion, weariness, rage and disappointment are three women, three experts either by their lived experience of these places and institutions or by their mother's experience of those places or experts in law. And one of those experts in law is Mairead Enright, who is a legal academic at the University of Birmingham. She has written extensively on law and feminism, reproductive justice and historical injustice. She knows the ins and outs of the law when it comes to the rights of adopted people to information about their births, which is, of course, so key in this issue. Noelle Brown 
is an artist and adoption rights activist born in Cork's Bessborough mother and baby home. Brown was adopted when she was eight weeks old. When she was 35, she decided to search for her birth family and was shocked by the obstacles she came up against. And finally, we have Rosemary Adasser, who you've heard speak so powerfully on this podcast before Christmas. Rosemary is the founder of the Association of Mixed Race Irish. She's a mixed race woman herself who was born into and grew up in Ireland's institutions. She was born in Belfast, then she was sent to a mother and baby home and then to an industrial school and along the way was fostered by people who were really not fit to look after children. And eventually she became pregnant in an industrial home herself in her teens and had her own son taken away from her. This is all very harrowing, obviously, for the thousands of people alive who are still affected and their families, but also for all of us listening and watching it, particularly because there's so much in the report that seems incongruous, like there was no evidence of forced adoptions. The women's evidence clearly contradicts this. And also the report says that women were not forced into these places. But as Catherine Connolly TD said so powerfully this week, the whole purpose of these places was to reform these women who had, and I'm using air quotes, sinned uh, just by becoming pregnant. So the very nature of what was happening was coercion and it was wrong. And as Mairead Enright certainly believes, the report is deeply flawed. I think the government should apologise for commissioning this report now so they don't have to apologise for it in another 30 years. I think scrap it and start again. So here it is, our podcast in the wake of the report into the mother and baby homes scandal. Mother and baby homes. They weren't homes really, were they? They were prisons. They weren't refuges. A place of refuge doesn't ruin your life the way it ruined the lives of so many women and their babies. Anyway, Cathy began by asking the three women how they were feeling today. Well, Rosemary and Noel, it's been a heck of a week. Yep. Um, you must be exhausted. And let me just begin, Rosemary, by asking you, how are you today? Um, God, um, still feeling quite raw, if I'm honest. Still feeling quite raw. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to do this um, Zoom meeting, if I'm really honest. Um, I haven't even really begun to dig into the report. Um, on the one hand, it's good that the report is, you know, we spent five years giving birth to this report. It's done. The baby's out. The baby's not looking too healthy. Uh, but the mother is, is doing okay, all things considered. I don't know if that even makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. It does. We'll expand upon it in a minute. Noel, let me ask you the same question. How are you feeling today? Yeah, raw is a very good word to describe it. Uh, very tired, very emotional, very angry. Yeah. Um, and yeah. while I'm, you know, doing lots of interviews and everything else, I, I, I listen back because sometimes I don't remember what I said because it comes out in such a rush. Uh, but I, I'm hearing more emotion um, in these interviews over the last few days than I usually am. I'm usually much calmer and all those things. I think I'm just, the scale of it this time, you know, it, it's different to other campaigns that we've done, even Repeal the Seal. The scale of it is so huge. And with the added thing of the report and the details, and I've dipped into the report a little bit, obviously focusing on Besborough where I was born. But it's so deeply upsetting. Um, for anybody who is connected to this issue, and that seems to be every family in Ireland has some knowledge or knows someone who is affected by it. And I'm kind of overwhelmed a lot of the time, I have to say, as are, I'm sure, a lot of survivors. I've got a, a very close friend and she hasn't gotten out of bed. She hasn't gotten out of bed all week. Such is her anxiety and fear and depression about this report. So just before I've come online to yourself, Cathy, I'm on the phone advising her just to sit up, just to sit up, get out of bed, think about the now. Very depressed, very depressed. Um, so am I, actually, except that I'm up. <laughs> well, Rosemary, is it the content of the report or is it the terribly charged feeling of this week, which has absolutely encompassed us all? But for you, who have been waiting for this for so long, it must be overpowering. Yeah, it's 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 both. Um, 
the fact that they're saying there was no discrimination is just absolutely shocking. And yet, within sections of the report that I've managed to, to scan, it's quite obvious that there are references to our colour and actually saying that they would be unlikely to adopt us. But yet the report said there was no discrimination. I think the other thing as well that I reflect on is that when I first met the commissioners in, was it 2015, um, it was a historian, she actually leapt back and says, but I didn't know there were black people before the 90s. And I remember at the time thinking, Jesus, that's a hell of a starting point. You're the historian and you're looking at myself, age 60, and you're looking at somebody else, age 70, and your starting point is, I didn't know there were black people. And because of that, and this, this is where I'm disappointed, I asked the commission, begged them to get experts who could help them look at the issue of race. Because if their starting point is there are no black people, then I'm thinking it would be helpful for them to get people in Ireland who have more knowledge of this issue, who could advise them. I begged, begged, begged. They refused. I now see the result in the report. Now, Rosemary, for anybody who hasn't listened to every single episode of the women's episode, and if they haven't, shame, but you were on with Roisin before and you gave a most powerful interview. Now, for people who didn't hear that, would you mind just giving us a quick summary of what's happened to you and why you are talking in particular about the racial element in it? Right, right. Well, like you've got um, the you've got 14 mother and baby homes and um, four county homes in this this report to be investigated. I was actually in St. Patrick's on the Navan Road. I was in Ardmore in Drogheda and my son was trafficked to Bessborough. So I have a connection with three of these reports. And the one thing that stood out for me personally was the fact that I could not be adopted because of my skin tone. It said so on my report, on my admission notes to St. Patrick. Um, unlikely to adopt. That was really common uh, a sideline on our admission notes. And I was funneled into uh, an industrial school in Kilkenny. And I am absolutely certain my treatment was absolutely through the prism of race and racism. It's not to take away from anybody else's hurt. But when you call the N-word 24-7 for 10 long years in a little country, I was in Kilkenny, there's no doubt in my mind that I was there because I was black. My mother told me she couldn't have me because I was black. She told me I mated with a member of the slave race. Those were her words to me when I met her. And she was absolutely convinced in the rightness of that statement. I mated with a slave race. I could have had you aborted because he was a gynecologist. And she saw nothing strange about those kinds of utterances. So I have always known that my time in Ireland was predicated upon my race. And Rosemary, you would have met your birth mother quite recently. I mean, that's, it's not 50 years ago. No, I, I, <laughs> I found her completely by accident. <laughs> completely by accident, Cathy. Um, I wrote to the address on my birth cert uh, back in the 90s. And it turns out the postman was a first cousin of hers. And he put her in touch with me. It wasn't a, a silly black surprise, surprise moment. This woman exuded anxiety, shame, nervousness from the moment I saw her. And there was no relationship because she was just too... I reminded her of her greatest shame and the great shame, so much so that she left Ireland and came to live in England, took elocution lessons to get rid of her Irishness. Yeah. It wasn't, we didn't, we didn't have a relationship. But Rosemary, she was using that language about your father, who was a gynecologist from Ghana, I think. Um, that's the language she was using up to quite recently. Oh, yes. This was quite recent. Well, she died 10 years ago, I think. I think, I can't really remember. It's, it's not, you know, people think of, well, that, you know, there's a death and it's somebody close, like your mother's supposed to be close and, 
you remember it, the date is a more is 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 um memorialized in your mind. I'll be honest, I didn't have a relationship with her because the shame she experienced having black twins dominated her waking moments for the rest of her life. And she had us in 56. I met her when I was about 40. I threw her back into a past that she had spent decades obliterating from her mind in the UK. So there was no way she was ever going to be uh, happy to see me. Uh, One of her cousins told me that she literally had to drag the woman to meet me. That was, she was so, she didn't want to meet me. Mm. I understand that. I understand that. One of the things in your story that that moved me very much, Rosemary, was when you were in Kilkenny and you said that you, you eventually were, there was an attempt to integrate you, I suppose, uh, with the girls in the local school. And you were continually being picked on because you were not white. Um, and a 14-year-old girl in the school stood up and defended you. Oh, and yeah. ex- with extraordinary courage yes. said, you're only picking on her because she's coloured. And, and, and that's the day you broke, you say. Yes, because I, you know, what that girl wouldn't have known would have been the racial slurs that were thrown at me on the way to school. I got it every day. I'd leave the institution, walk the three miles to the, the, the local public school, and without question, every day, somebody was chucking racism at me, or men were exposing themselves down alleyways to me. And this was so common. This was It was every single damn day, I mustn't use bad language, so when this young lass stood up and said, you're only picking at her for because she's coloured, it broke something in me because nobody had ever defended me, ever. In the 14 years of my, of, of, of my existence, nobody had actually stood and said, you're only doing that because she's coloured. So she, she validated my existence. She vindicated me. So... For, And that's the day when I did break, actually, because I thought, oh, it's not just me then. You know, somebody else has seen it, too. She was an amazingly brave woman. And, you know, unknown to her, she probably um, straightened my spine for the rest of my life because that's when I became a warrior. Isn't that extraordinary? And just briefly, Rosemary, can you give us a summary of what happened to you after that? You were still in Kilkenny, obviously, at 14. How much longer did that go on for? Um, I was there till I was 16 and I got pregnant with a beautiful man. And um, the nuns threatened him with statutory rape and deportation. He wasn't Irish. And that was really important to me because I knew I wasn't going to have an Irish boyfriend. I just knew it. You know, when you have the nuns telling you you'd be better off having men friends, there was no career for me was to become a prostitute apparently. Um, And I left at 16 and I was sent to a mother and baby home in Drogheda. And at 21 days, my son was just taken from me. There was no discussion. There was no consent. And that's one of the things I disagree with the the report. It, it, It sort of presumes that thousands and thousands of us women all decided, yes, we're going to hand our babies in. Here you go. There was no consent. At 16, how could I possibly know what I was signing? I didn't sign anything, in fact. <laughs> so you lost your, your twin brother was separated from you at the age of six. Uh, your son was taken away from you. Yes. Um, your story is one of the most horrific I've heard in terms of those kind of separations. Were you reunited with, with, your, with your brother and your son eventually? Yes, I was. I was. Uh, my brother, um, some eight, nine years after I was in the institution. Um, but this is the thing about family destruction is that you lose crucial time together. I had my brother, my twin brother, for the first six years of my life. He was there when I woke up. He was there when I went to bed. And suddenly he was gone and I was in this hostile environment. 
The same goes with、um, my son. At 21 days old, he was just taken. And I have reconnected with him and reconnected with, with、um, my twin. But when you remove family members, it's incredibly difficult to reforge that connection. Because, and, and, and I have now, and I have a lovely relationship with my son. He's smashing, he's smashing, but I can't ever forgive the nuns for separating us. I can't ever forgive the nuns for separating my twin. It was my only family. You know, so we talk of family destruction. Yes, my family was destroyed by the ethos of the Catholic Church, first with my mother, then my father. Then my twin brother, and then my son. It takes an extraordinary level of、um, self forgiveness to be able to try and reforge those connections that have been destroyed by a church and state.、Um, Rosemary, I, I find it very hard to say anything to any of that, except it's,、okay. it's important because it. Is part of what's missing from the report where you're concerned.、Mm. There are several parts、mm. there, in fact,、it、but、is. the racial、uh, element,、um, the destruction of family, the, 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 the consent issue. Yeah, and, and, but, but it's, it's the idea that there was no discrimination when every mixed race Irish person I've spoken to、um, who, who's in these industrial schools, mother and baby homes, Without exception, they have all described pretty much what I grew up with. So it wasn't a case of us coming together in a room and cocknocking a story. No, every single one, whether they were in Galway, Limerick, Kilkenny, Dublin, Wexford, Louth, every single one of them, and we would scratch our heads and go, God, that was me. That was me. We'd never met before 20, 2013. And without exception, There was a strong thread that there was a tremendous amount of colour abuse directed at us because of our skin tone. So, for the report to dismiss it, and bearing in mind the starting point is that they weren't even aware of our existence, that's the bit that I find really insulting. They weren't aware of our existence. They refused to get expert help that would assist them in learning about our existence. A dear friend of mine was able to give them photographs. Of her grandparents, all black, going back to the 30s. So the idea that somehow we didn't, that the starting point was that mixed race Irish didn't exist before the 90s is a gross insult. Again, it's eradicating my existence, the existence of my community. And I asked them, just get some help in Ireland. There are sufficient experts in Ireland that would be able to help you. No. 20 million euros, and they couldn't afford a couple of hundred euros to get some people who did know about the issue of race in Ireland. And I find that deeply insulting. And I think that's what I'm angry about. Yeah, I am angry. You asked me how I felt, and I said raw. That's the initial thing. Actually, I'm deeply angry, and I'm deeply hurt that once again,、um, my reality, my existence has been dismissed. By middle class white people. What the hell would they know about poverty? What would they know? So, yes, I'm angry. I'm angry, Cathy. Noelle, you were, you were born at, at Bessborough, the mother and baby home.、Um, did you grow up with that knowledge? Was your experience a bit more straightforward, for want of a better term? Yes, it was. I mean,、uh, my family at the time, my adoptive family, my parents,、um, They were very progressive in that they told me I was adopted、uh, from day one. It wasn't common at the time, and I was in school with women who realized they were adopted and were told at the age of 21 or never told. So I always knew it. So I carried it and I thought it was something special and wonderful. And it was only when I started to say it out loud in, you know, to people around me, I realized there was a, such a huge level of shame attached to it. Um, and it kind of startled me, you know, I didn't realize.、Um, and, you know, my family were of their time as well in some ways, and they were saying, you know, you have to be very careful.、Um, uh, and it's what they were being told by their 
friends and relatives, it was, you know, you, you have to be careful because you're expected to go wrong in life, basically. Um, you will, you know, mess up. You have to be very careful. Uh, and that kind of was quite a, a, a pressure, I suppose, you know. It's an interesting point, Noel, because there, there is, I, I, I've heard, heard um, survivors during the week objecting to the fact that counselling was immediately suggested, which implied that you were all utterly damaged um, and not capable of sustaining relationships. Yeah. Um, which is not true. No, not at all. And it, there's complete no. discrimination there on so many levels. There's discrimination on class, race, background. Uh, and it, that was a huge part of it. Um, but the assumption is, oh, you poor broken little things. My experience with the Commission of Investigation talking to the Confidential Committee was just that. There was a sense of, here's some tea and sympathy, you poor broken thing. Um, and I found that really, really upsetting. There is a bias there's a there's a sort of a discrimination against adoptees. There's a there's a picture that is built up of adoptees, and no more than the fact that they will not allow us our identities. They will not give us the information because we might run mad around the country, knocking on doors looking for our origins. That we are somehow not capable of managing our own lives. And the more this, you know, more I campaign as an activist, the more I come up against that. I was very naive when I started to agitate for my rights and for people people's rights for our birth, you know, our birth information, our medical records, our birth certificates, basic human rights. I was naive and I realised there's a big division and I realised at meeting the Commission of Investigation and when I got my transcript yesterday morning, when I looked at the questions that were contained in there and the absolute mess that they made of my testimony, it was written from a point of privilege and discrimination and a perception that we are broken people. I have used counselling in my life. I have used psychotherapy in my life, not because I'm adopted, but as a direct result of how I've been treated from 2002 right up until the end of, of 2020 as an adopted person. I've been brutalised by a system that sees me as other, different, broken, not to be trusted. I've been infantilised. That's why I've chosen counselling. But that rolling out of counselling now and no indication that the reason that survivors need counselling is as a direct result of how they've been treated, treated by the state and the Catholic Church. I find that kind of beggar's belief. You know, it's just the fact that we're adopted. We're all an accident of birth. None of us are perfect. We didn't choose to be born in mother and baby homes. But there's a, we are being dealt with by people of privilege. There's no doubt about that. In Ireland, you know, it's that thing of who you are, who your family are, where you come from. We take great pride in that. We are denied that and we are dictated to by people who have a privilege that, they do, that puts them in a position where they do not understand who we are. We are just othered. That's my take on it. Well, Noelle, one of the things that I think really startled a lot of people was to discover that you couldn't get your birth certificate. Um, now, that didn't mean you had no birth certificate. We obviously all need birth certificates to get a passport, for example. There are a lot of things in life we can't do without one. So how did that work in practice? Well, basically, and it's literally taken me a long time to figure it out, what I had growing up was an adoption cert, which is not a birth cert, which has my adoptive family's names on it. And I had a short form birth cert, which is a legal document. And on the bottom of it says it is a criminal offence to alter this or put any lies on it, essentially. And there's a big fat lie in it. It says that I was born in County Dublin. I wasn't. That's what they write about people who were born in Cork. So here's a legal document, a short form birth cert and adoption cert. I had no long form birth cert because my long form birth cert would have my birth mother's name on it and possibly my father's name. So when I realised this, I had, you know, I didn't have a birth cert as far as I was concerned. And I had written a play with a friend of mine, Michelle Forbes, in 2013, um, I began to look for my birth cert. I thought, I, I, I have to have a birth cert. I, I mean, you know, I have a short form and an adoption cert. So what I did was uh, I went in and uh, the first time I looked for a birth cert, I was given my adoption cert. They said, oh, you're adopted. Go upstairs, get, get your adoption cert. So the next time I went in, I had traced uh, my birth family, so I knew my birth mother's name and I knew my birth name. So I used that and I went to the counter and said, can I have my birth cert? Uh, I'm pretty sure you couldn't do it now, but I was given my birth cert. So for the first time in my life, and it was huge, it was monumental, it was terrifying because I thought 
I was breaking the law. I thought I was a criminal in asking for this vital piece of paper that everyone takes for granted. That's how I got my birth cert. So now I have a short form birth cert, my adoption cert and my long form birth cert. Because people say, oh, do you have your original birth cert? You know, we all only have one birth cert and they go to great lengths to prevent us from getting it. And it is, we're the only country in Europe that does that. It's extraordinary that we don't even have that basic right to our identity because we might go mad with that information. We might do something we're not allowed to do. It's extraordinary. And it just, at this stage in, in 2021, this is the legacy that we've been handed having been born in those institutions. This is the, the legacy that's going on and it needs to change. We've been agitating for this for a very long time. Give us our identities, give us our medical records, our birth certs and our birth information. It's hugely important. Noelle, at a purely human interest level, did you see your birth mother? Have you, have you connected? When I went tracing uh, my birth mother in 2002, I discovered that she had died in 2009. She was given contaminated blood. Uh, she ended up with uh, a failing liver and was given a liver transplant and died at the age of 47. So I never got to meet her. But significantly at that time, when I got my information, which was finally extracted with the help of Bernardo's, a nun who's quite famous uh, for anybody who's gone through Besbra, decided to obliterate the details of my birth father. Now, it would have been really good for me at that time, having known that I would never meet my birth mother, to know that there was a parent out there. But there were no details recorded, disappeared. So I took that as the truth. It left me with questions around the circumstances of my conception. Was it forced? What happened? And that's what happens when you're denied information. I took that. I spent years going backwards and forwards to Tusla trying to get my file. And in 2017, I did a 13-minute interview on The Late Late Show. And I got a call from Tusla two or three days later saying that they did have my father's name and address. And then they said, we're not going to give it to you. We'll put you on a waiting list for two and a half years. And then we will write to him on your behalf. That's what they gave me. So before the end of the two and a half years, obviously I had lost faith in Tusla and the whole organisation. And I did a DNA test and I had my information and found relatives of my birth father uh, within about six weeks, uh, unfortunately, to discover that he had died in 2016. Now, nobody can give me back those years where I could have made contact with him because some nun just sat down and decided to obliterate those facts. Where's the humanity in that? Who gave her the right to do that, to create an impediment in me connecting with my birth family? And what I gather from my birth family, he would have met me. But I've been denied, denied meeting birth family, connecting with my birth father. It would have made such a difference to me. And that has been my experience. It's not harrowing, but it's deeply upsetting. And it has taken an enormous chunk of my life fighting for basic rights, where I came from, who I was born to, when I was born, piecing all those bits of information together, where are the lies, where are the half-truths, a massive amount of energy and time that most people with that privilege of knowing where they came from don't have to deal with. Why was I, you know, singled out? Because I was born in a mother and baby home, an accident of birth. Does any of this surprise you? I presume not. No, I, I think... Um one of the things that has struck me over the years, like like Noel, I've, I've been an activist for like seven years or so. And what's really, really struck me has been the separation between the adult adopted and the first mothers. As I, I prefer the term first mother, not birth mother, because what, was I an incubator? And what has really, what I have found very healing was getting to know adult adopted and recognising that for all of us, we're all part of the same system of separation. So as a first mother, I'm being told, no, you don't want to have contact with um, your son because you'll upset him. He won't want to know you. My son is being told, no, you won't want to have contact with your mother because you could give her a heart attack. So I absolutely, you know, like when Noelle is talking about the birth sir. That's what my son found as well. There's a bit at the very end of his, uh, what I call illegal birth cert, which says you cannot alter this birth certificate. And the irony that he already had a birth certificate is completely lost upon the Irish authorities. So as I said, you know, yes, I do think Noel's story is traumatic. It is traumatic because 
she has been denied basic information about her person. It is so basic. You're there, Kathy. You know who your mom and dad are, yeah. I finally know who my mom and dad are. And and this is the thing about Irish systems. Fathers had no rights. They had no rights. Every child in there, if they had a father willing to put their name on the birth cert, they wouldn't have been able to put their name on the birth cert. I only knew my father's name because I was born in Northern Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, he did claim us. But from the minute I hit the Republic of Ireland, his name was left off every single record, and I finally learned my true name when I was eighteen years old, and I'd left the institutions, and I went, I went trying, I was trying to hunt down、um, my parentage. So, I suppose. I do consider what went, what Noel went through as hugely damaging to her. Okay, she didn't have scars on her back at the end of a beating every day, but nevertheless, what's more scarring is the psychological damage. And I have carried these scars for sixty. I'm almost sixty-five. I've carried the scars of my upbringing all of my life, and it was only when I began to speak out about it. That I broke the bounds of silence imposed upon me by church and state. The bounds of silence that said you can't talk about your history, your origin, Rosemary, because you yourself are a stain. So if I were you, I'd shut up about it. You are listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Blacks, wildly, deliciously. Organic. Discover a different kind of dark. Mairead, have you managed to get through all three thousand pages of this report? It's not three thousand pages. It's two thousand eight hundred and something, with plenty of white space, including appendices.、Uh, I haven't. I, I. I won't tell you. I've. I've gotten through all of it, but I've gotten through most of it.、Um, and, and focusing because because I, I'm a lawyer, focusing on. The recommendations, the ways in which the report justifies its conclusions, its account of legal history,、um, its recommendations for future state action, and so on. So that's that's what I can speak to with the most authority. I haven't read every single word of the social history sections, but I have read some of it. Well, I'm afraid we we have a fairly clear idea now of the horrors that went on in those places. So your legal knowledge, Mairead, will be very useful indeed.、Um, There's there's a sense that there was a very legalistic approach to this. Is is that your impression? Yeah, that that is my impression.、Um, so there there are three major members of the commission. There's、um, there's the judge, Judge Yvonne Murphy, whose whose job historically, when she's done this sort of thing for the state before, has been to make recommendations for future action around redress and so on. Um, there's Professor Duncan, who is a, a, a scholar of, of family law, and then Professor Daly, who's the person Rosemary had mentioned before, who is the the major historian on the work.、Um, Professor Duncan is obviously very well respected and very well regarded,、um, and individual sections don't have individual authors' names, but I would assume he's the person behind the legal analysis. There's a lot of emphasis on what was technically legal or illegal at the time.、Um, there's a lot of emphasis on legislation and on the law of the higher courts. At the same time, there is a recognition that the law was inadequate,、uh, not necessarily obeyed, and that there's not an awful there's a lot of point in talking about cases in the higher courts when the vast majority of people wouldn't have gotten near a courtroom except to be told, you know, except for the enforcement of the system. It was very rare, for example, for a mother、uh, a mother's refusal of consent to an adoption to be upheld,、uh, even when that was you know categorised as a legal issue. So, from a socio-legal perspective, you know, those of us who are interested in how the law actually operates, people's lived experience, their testimony to their lived experience of that law, is more important than how the law was written on the books, or at the very least, you can't understand what the law was without taking account of people's experience of that law. So, I would think it's very legalistic. It's very formalistic in its approach. The second thing I'd say is, while it is interesting and important. Uh, in order to get a full picture of how things were allowed to happen, it's interesting and important to understand what the technical law was and who made it and how they justified it. But from a human rights perspective, we would emphasise 
that, well, two things. Uh, mass human rights abuses are very rarely illegal. They're not done by evil people, exceptional people who are out there breaking the law. They are enabled to take place because they are supported at every level of the system. Police, social workers, judges and so on, politicians. And because those people are participating in the system in different ways and are reliant on it, not only for their reputation, but for managing their own families. Right. So it would be very strange if... Um, we recognised that much of this behaviour was illegal. As an aside, however, you know, if you contrast the work of the Clon Project with the conclusions of this report, much of what was done was illegal and there is acknowledgement of illegal behaviour, but it is excused. Excuses are made for people who are part of the system that are not made for mothers and fathers. And we can talk about that. I can give you some examples of that later. Do please, yes. What else would I say about it? I mean... Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the other thing is, it's great whether it was legal or illegal, but we would emphasise, and I, you can hear it from what Noel and Rosemary have said, the continuing harms of this system, right? It doesn't matter if it was legal or illegal then. That's not the main point. The main point is we recognise now the harms of it, and we have to recognise the complicity of our current legal system in maintaining those harms. You know, what Noel and Rosemary have both said about and the various levels of control that are given to Tusla and to religious actors simultaneously and before them to control people's access to their basic information, their early life history and so on. That is part of our current system today. What Noelle says about getting her testimony and the way in which she got her testimony from a hearing that I think would have been conducted around, what, 2015, 2017? 2017. 2017, very recently. Control over a statement she made in the last couple of years, right, apparently or backed by the government's uh, interpretation of existing law, right? So this question of what was legal or illegal or what judges said in 1970 or, you know, the relevance of law to what was for the vast majority of this period an unregulated system of adoption because we didn't have formal adoption legislation until the 50s. I mean, it's interesting, and I like law and I like reading it. And if, I, if, if people weren't interested in law, I wouldn't have a job, right? But it's interesting, but it's not the point. Yeah, that, and that's, that's, that's really important. It's interesting, but it's not the point. Maraith, I suppose what it comes down to is, is the interpretation of forced adoption, say, or, yes. uh, or racial discrimination, say. Um, what, where did the emphasis land in the end, do you think? Was it all about interpretation or about who wrote certain sections? What happened? So, OK, so having chatted with both lawyers and historians in the last couple of days, I suppose the key word, key word for me would be methodology. So if you look at the terms of reference of the, of the, the, the commission, um, one of the terms of reference says that they will set out their fact-finding methodology effectively. And that's not quite done. So, for example, a lot of people have said, well, how can they say there's no evidence of X or there's insufficient evidence of Y, when at the same time, if you open the confidential committee section of the report, people are telling stories that appear to contradict that. Um, and we believe them. And those stories are corroborating each other. And there are, as Rosemary is saying, there are patterns of commonality. And... Um, as far as I can see, and it's a huge report, um, or bloated report, maybe we might use that word instead, uh, they don't expressly articulate the standard that they're using to determine whether something is, as they say, proven or not proven. Um, previous inquiries, for example, the Ryan Committee, uh, Ryan Commission, sorry, would have set out how they decide if something is proven or not. Um, and so it's very difficult to say like how they have come to certain conclusions, like there was no forced adoption, because they don't say, well, what, what does forced mean? What is the standard by which we would determine whether something is forced? They don't, I mean, I would put the chapter on discrimination in another category, because I think what Rosemary says about racial discrimination is correct. Um, there's a very narrow focus in that section of the report on one question, which is, can we prove whether disability or a mother's um, history of mental illness or, um, I mean, it's not even right to say the racial identity of the child because they talk about other physical characteristics which have nothing to do with race at all. 
Um, did that make a material difference? Can we show that made a material difference to whether a child was adopted or not? And they conclude wrongly in many people's opinions that it didn't make a difference. And then they disregard effectively all of the other things Rosemary is talking about, which is the atmosphere of institutionalization and daily and repeated aggression on the basis of race. And no, I mean, I'm not an expert on racial discrimination, but I know the basics, as many people do, and we understand that imposing or failing to correct an environment of day-to-day racial discrimination is a wrong, yeah? In relation to forced adoption, which I know lots of people will be interested in, it's difficult for me to answer that question, but there's two different things the um, report says. In the executive summary, I think, or, or in the introduction, Uh, They say, we don't want to call this forced adoption because we wouldn't want families created through adoption to feel that stigma, which is number one. And that question seems to be muddled then with perhaps the the fact-finding question of was, well, did women consent to these adoptions or not? Um, I don't know if by force they mean physical force. They don't define it. But certainly it is very, very clear from the report that uh, depending on the time period in which you are, uh, depending on which time period, because, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 70s, whatever, that women were coerced. And, and the report does admit this in a, more, in a less direct way. You know, the report says a few times women had no choice, primarily for economic reasons. Um, and it's for that reason, actually, that, and I think this is, very difficult to justify, but it's for that reason, for example, that the report suggests that uh, women who who were in the homes after the introduction of unmarried mothers' allowance should not receive financial redress from the state, because they're saying, well, I mean, they never spell it out. So actually, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the work for them of parsing what it is they think they're saying there. But I'm sure people can draw their own conclusions. Rosemary, but we were never told. We were never told about. Well, this is it. Yeah, you know. If- if the report talks about the average age of a, a mother was 2021, 20, at 2021, 20, are you aware of your legal rights? You're in an environment of deep shame and you're expecting a baby. Nobody was going to point out the unmarried mother supplement in 73. Even even if it were adequate, like as if it's... So the, I assume the idea is that, that either the state has already made its offer or... That should suffice. That is enough to overcome, you know, shame, social stigma around unmarried parenthood, lack of access to contraception, lack of access to abortion and so on and so forth. Right. And so there is I mean, it's a very it's treating the adoption consent form like a commercial contract. Right. A commercial contract can only be set aside for duress if there is a very severe intervention of deliberately applied pressure on that contract. Um, and it's very difficult to set it aside for other kinds of influence or injustice, unconscionability. But an adoption consent form is not a commercial contract. It never was, right? Uh, there's a constitutional right, which is recognised later in the period, but a constitutional right of the first mother uh, to certain kinds of uh, family connections uh, with her with her child. And that constitutional right could not have been adequately protected by saying we'll only set the, the adoption aside if there was some application of physical force. That can't have been the case. And in any event, there are examples of application of physical force. I think maybe what the commission is trying to get at, if I were going to be very charitable to it for, you know, for the day that's in it, um, is it saying we can't show systematic and structural evidence of this. So the state shouldn't set up a redress scheme because redress schemes are for mass violations um, and individual violations should be remedied in a different way. Now, I don't think it wasn't structural. That's not what I'm saying. But if the commission is saying there may be individual circumstances, fine. But then the commission makes absolutely no recommendations about what we should do about that. And we know, you know, think about cases like Tressa Reeves case, for example, or think about other cases where women have tried to and, and um, have tried to contest uh, adoptions that they say they didn't consent to, um, and they haven't been able to bring those cases to court for various reasons around access to legal aid, time limits, and so on. The Commission makes no recommendations about how those individuals should be able to get justice um, in the future. And there's also a suggestion, and this happens in other reports on historical injustice in Ireland, 
that people may be quite, can't quite be believed. So I was very surprised to see one throwaway sentence in that chapter, chapter 32, I think it is, on adoption, which said, well, we may not have realised then, but we know now that sometimes the mother will be in denial about what she signed and what she did. And that's just there, right? So when we come back to the question of evidence, how astonishing is it? Like what methodology? It just really offends me as a scholar, right? Like what methodology allows you to set aside hundreds of testimonies that say, this is not what I wanted. I felt I had no choice. I felt I was under pressure. And then just throw in that one little line that says, but sure, maybe they're only caught in themselves. And I think, you know, the, the contrast between the anonymized and very fragmented statements that are taken in various sections of the report from survivors, the tone of those statements is, it's, in my view, Noelle is absolutely right, is to suggest, look, we're here to listen to you and we're doing our best, but we cannot allow you to shape how this society responds financially and legally to this issue in the future, because we're not entirely sure you can be believed. If I could say one last thing about expertise, because um, I, I just wanted to back Rosemary up. Um, I think in Ireland, politicians, I don't think, or, I think ordinary people get it, but I think politicians have a tendency to think, oh, there's a legal question, we'll get a lawyer. There's a historical question, we'll get a historian. And if they're a professor, so much the better. You're not an expert in everything. I'm a lawyer, I'm not an expert in all the laws. I do some legal history, I don't know all the histories, right? It would have been so much better to think creatively about parceling out parts of this inquiry to people who are genuine experts in the subject, right? And I think there is a tendency in Ireland, this happened with abortion as well, to associate specialisation with bias. You know, if you're a historian of race, it's because you're, you know, you can't be trusted to give a fair account of things, you know. But no, you have to, you have to have the training to understand what's in front of you. If you were trying to organise a merger between two big companies, you wouldn't go to a criminal solicitor, right? You go to somebody who knows what they're doing. And, you know, I have better things to be doing with my time than, than kind of question people's expertise. But it should have been apparent to people making decisions about who would be on the, the, the commission. I don't know what decisions were made to revise parts of the report or adjust conclusions or whatever, I don't see a well-regarded, well-known published historian of race anywhere acknowledged in that report. Same with disability and so on. Same with class, to be honest, in some ways. Aside from the fact that there are no recommendations in the report, is there any basis in this report for investigations to be instigated? There are recommendations. I'm sorry, I may not have been clear. There are recommendations. They are... Um, in previ um, on previous occasions, the let's say the historical part of the inquiry, the official history part of the inquiry, is usually separate from the design of the response, the design of the redress scheme. Um, now there, there may be a more detailed redress scheme coming, but it's but the recommendations are there. They're just much sketchier than what would have what we might have expected uh, by comparison with previous reports. I suppose what I meant there, Mairead, as well, is, is um, there is some talk of criminality. Um, is there a yeah. basis for investigations there in this report? I know that the report has been sent to the DPP. Um, I would encourage people again to look at the Clon Project report because what they say is, is two things. And I'm not a criminal lawyer, so having given my little homily about expertise, I'll, I'll set my boundaries, right? But... Um, Two things. One is, uh, one is, and you know, if anyone has been following, for example, Elizabeth Coppin's case, which is coming up before the UN Committee Against Torture, um, I did notice, and this is interesting from the report as well, there's been some comment about, well, why did people not go to the guards when they knew there was a crime? Um, for example, teenagers showing up pregnant to these institutions who, you know, clearly statutory rape, statutory rape was part of Irish law from at least 1935. Why did nobody go to the guards? Um, we know the guards often didn't investigate. And even more recently, Elizabeth Coppin, when she was an adult, long after she had left the institutions, went to the guards. So the Clan Project have recommended the establishment of a special criminal justice unit within the, the Gardaí, 
which would have a clear mandate and obligation to investigate evidence arising from and, and reports brought by people with information on these issues. The second question is inquests. And again, this is not my area, but uh, you may know that the government is planning to bring a special bill around inquests, exhumation and identification. That's very strangely not discussed in much detail in this report. Um, Klan would argue that there are already adequate powers to investigate deaths which appear to have occurred by, for example, gross neglect or without explanation and so on. Um, so I'm not... A crim- the other thing I would say, right, is we always go to criminalisation and I'm, some survivors are asking for a criminal investigation. Many have other priorities. It's important to listen to people and what, listen to what they want and make multiple avenues for justice, redress and inquiry available. Um, no report that tries to tell a mass history can substitute for an individual person's need to know what happened to them and what happened to their family members. And those individualised pathways have to be made available. But I think if people had more trust in inquiries like this, they wouldn't be saying, I have to go to court. Nobody And that's something the state has been able to manipulate in many ways. Nobody wants to go to court. They want to go because they feel, I need to be listened to, I need to be taken seriously as an adult citizen with reasonable political and legal arguments to make. You know, where can I go? Right? And so there's there's a double defect here in that you produce a huge report like this, which... I'm not sure it says actually, as an aside, I don't think it says we don't believe survivors. I think it says, fine, we believe them, but it doesn't matter because they're not, they're not able to prove something that we care about. Um, and I think when you produce a report like that and you call it justice or what are we calling it now? Restorative recognition. Forgot. I mean, yeah. So you call it that, of course, people are angry and of course, people are going to want alternative um, routes and they're constitutionally entitled to them. And so I would want to see what the government has to say about keeping the law open, making the necessary reforms to enable people to bring effective civil and criminal cases if they want. Noelle, um, this this is all very negative um, and maybe necessarily so. What would you like to happen now? Um, I think basically, you know, there's there's a lot of talk around memorialization and all of this local and national and all of those. And and in fairness, you know, those mass graves have not been exhumed yet. We have not dealt with that. So let's not get on to the putting up statues or pieces of art or whatever else we're going to do. Let us deal with the case in hand. Um, What I want, and I think what, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure as survivors, we all may want different things. But the main thing for me personally, and I don't speak for all survivors, is, as I said earlier, to deal with the legacy of what we've been left with. Uh, you know, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to get our rights together. We're trying to be, you know, to be embraced by the government, by the, by, by the state, you know, to give us our identities and stop making such a big deal about it. Stop hiding, stop, you know... It's like mistakes were made in the past. We have, we have no doubt about that. Big mistakes were made. But there's an awful tendency with this, and I've dealt with it so much from 2002 right up to, to the end of, of um, 20, or 2019, is that when they make a mistake, be it Tusla, be it whoever that has information on you, complete strangers with your most personal information, sitting it in front of them, looking at it, and you can't see it, is that there's a tendency to hide the mistake that's the biggest problem and pretend it didn't happen or call the people who called out the mistake liars. Make it seem that the people who are impacted by the mistake, that they're, they're not of sound mind or they don't understand or they've told blatant lies. That's a big problem. What I want, apart from an acknowledgement that this was a collusion between the state and the church that created a lot of what happened, is our legacy to be taken and put aside and give us our identity automatically. No referendums, no tweaking of more further offensive legislation like the Adoption Information and Tracing Bill, but just give us our rights. We've been denied them. We've been told we can't because of the Constitution. We can't because of this. Yes, you can. Do this. I want that desperately more than anything, that nobody has to go through what I went through for such a large chunk of my life and the emotional impact that has had on me. And I cannot believe, I I mean, I wrote a play in 2013 about my experiences and I did it in London in February of 2020. 
And I couldn't believe that it was still relevant. Every single thing about it, nothing had changed. So let's make that, you know, less of the big speeches and the apologies. Let's do that. Make the change now. No referendums, no tweaking and pieces of legislation that we have to fight again and overturn and look for support. That, for me, is what I dearly need to happen. Okay. Rosemary, what, what would you like to see happening right now? I'm far less interested in statues than in making sure that this particular part of Irish history is actually part of Irish history. My biggest worry is that this will be seen as a chapter, oh, well, now, let's tick that box, we've dealt with it now. What I would like, and I'm a member of the Collaborative Forum, um, which was formed on the Minister's Zappone, what I would like would be to see the story of industrial schools, mother and baby homes, Magdalen laundries, firmly embedded within the Leaving Certificate uh, curriculum. When we suggested it, when the report, which was never actually published, when we suggested it, the government's first response was that it was far too sensitive for delicate young ears. But yet we can glorify the 1916 blood cult revolution. We can glorify that, but when it comes to women, no, 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 no. It's far too delicate for, for young minds. So personally, I'm not interested in statues. I am interested in the story of Irish women in history books. So it doesn't become a specialised uh, uh, university level option. It needs to be compulsory. That's what I personally would like. On the subject of race, I really would like... like the Commission for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination agreed with us. In Geneva, third UN committee agreed that Ireland had a case to answer when it came to racism against mixed-race Irish women and their children. I would like the Commission to actually say, you know what, we kind of got that one wrong. And I'm just sort of thinking of Maraid's point where, you know, it's technical. And, and, and it just seems so silly because... Of necessity, this whole report has been a review of recent history. Participants are telling you their lived experience. And you've got a bunch of professionals, Judge Murphy and co, somehow trying to tell me again whether my experience was real or not. I find that really objectionable, if I'm really honest. I find that objectionable. I think I'm older than both of them. I think I'm actually older than both of than, than, than all the people on this commission. And I'm being infanticized all over again. That is deeply, deeply hurtful and insulting. Mairead, can I leave the final word with you? What can be done now to fix this? Well, um, I think it's important to remember that the Commission's recommendations are just that. They're not binding. And I think just to pick up on, on Rosemary's point about human rights and, you know, the contrast between, you know, this situation where the Commission is effectively saying, well, nothing to see here, but we have. And not just, you know, and it was a wonderful report that, that Mixed Race Irish produced for their submission to the UN Committee, I'd encourage anyone to read it and maybe read it before they read the discrimination chapter and they'll really see what we're talking about. Like, this contrast is really interesting. Um, and it's interesting that the Commission itself says, well, we're not really talking about human rights uh, because the government opted for us not to take a human rights, rights-based approach. You know, because it's optional, right? Whether we protect people's human rights or not. Um, I think it would be good for the government to come back, give survivors time to process all of this, come back and ask them what they want to see done. Yeah, but I think the Clan Project's um, recommendations, which build on the Collaborative Forum's recommendations and also build on interviews with First Mothers and with people who were adopted or um, dealt with, I suppose, through this wider system, I think their recommendations are a good starting point. And to just build on what Noel said, there is this idea that we need mass legislative and constitutional law reform in order to do right by adopted people. We don't. And particularly in relation to people's personal data, which means things like their birth certificates, but also records relating to how they were raised in the earlier years of their lives. 
um, and the identities of, of their, their, um, their, their fathers and mothers of all kinds and so on. That information, we argued this during the last debate with, with Minister O'Gorman, that information is already adequately regulated by the GDPR. People already have a right of access to their personal data. The Commission says the TUSLA can't be blamed, um, that, that the, the criticism of them is unreasonable because they're only obeying the law. We don't agree. We think that they have been badly advised as to the law. And um, there really isn't any need for dramatic re-regulation of access to information, at least in relation to personal data. Of course, there's an issue around how, how some people feel about contact. And there is an issue in relation to how some people feel about tracing. That is a separate issue from access to information, which is a fundamental dimension of people's constitutional rights, as recently recognised by the Irish Court of Appeal. We don't even have to go shopping abroad for fancy human rights to to vindicate it, right? So I think de-exceptionalising our treatment of people whose lives have already been so badly affected by this system. And the last thing I'd say, just the tone of the report is very... um, you know, privatising. It, you know, it was your granddad, it was your father, it wasn't really the state, it was your family who failed in their obligations to pay for you. That's the overwhelming, you know, your family weren't courageous enough, your family didn't spread the wealth. And I think that attempt to privatise what was so clearly systemic is really problematic I think the government should apologise for commissioning this report now so they don't have to apologise for it in another 30 years. I think scrap it and start again. I think, you know, this continual reproduction of the same techniques to govern this population of marginalised people. And as as Rosemary's um, account shows, many people were in multiple institutions, many families were affected across multiple generations. So you're taking the stick to the same people over and over and over again. This has to be the last such report. This is, we can't ask another marginalised population to participate in an inquiry like this again. We have to scrap this approach and start again, go back to human rights basics, apply the law of the land to people. Okay, I see heads nodding vigorously there in agreement. Mairead, listen, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Noel. Thank you, Rosemary. All we can do is say we're with you and hope for better times. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks so much to Noel Brown, Mairead Enright and Rosemary Adasser. And of course, to Cathy Sheridan. We'll be coming back to this. There is so much more to be done. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to get in touch, we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and on social at IT Women's Podcast. Take care of yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.